John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are a few events that bring more joy than a wedding. For that moment, many bask in the glow of a young or youngish couple uniting in the bonds of marriage, making a covenant with each, with each other and with God to remain as one till death do they part. Now, several of us here were at just such a wedding a few months ago, and uh, I'll say that that day was the second best day of my life. Um, obviously, next to the day that Jesus Christ called me, that he granted me repentance and enabled me to turn from my sin and turn to him. But for many who had not been at the wedding, when they came home, people would have asked them to describe the, the bride's dress or the flowers, hopefully the sermon. But for this wedding, the one that we're talking about today, it was all about the wine. At least that was the case for most of the guests. There were a select few who really knew what this event was all about. And today I trust that by God's grace we will have a better idea of what this event was all about. So with John chapter 2, we're, we're embarking into the, the next section of the gospel according to John. With John, chapter, with John chapter 2, with the third day, after being announced by John the Baptist, Jesus had begun his, his public ministry and he began to travel around the region teaching and performing miracles. Now, this section is going to continue through to the end of, of chapter 12. It spans almost the entire three years of Jesus' ministry on earth. And because of the focus that John gives on signs, this section, chapters 2 through 12, is often referred to as the book of signs. And then John devotes almost the whole second half of his gospel account, chapters 13 to 20 on the events that lead up to the crucifixion. And this section is often referred to as the book of glory. 
Now, although the division is helpful, this distinction really isn't quite as clear-cut as that because remember that John says in, in John 20, 30, and 31 that the whole book is a book of signs and a book of glory. It reads, Now when Jesus did many other signs, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that provides the, the purpose statement for this gospel account. And when we when we when we read the gospel account, we need to think about it all in light of that statement. And so the way to understand what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, is by interpreting it in the light of what John had said there in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So here in this section, in, in verses 1 to 11, Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. Now, it, it probably seems strange to you that Jesus would choose this as his first miracle. Why wine? Or that he would choose to do this at a wedding. And at a small town far away from the religious center, we'd probably expect him to go straight to the temple in Jerusalem and to, to heal a leper or to raise somebody from the dead to make a bold statement right there at the beginning of his ministry. Now, he's going to go to the temple in a couple of days, and we'll, we'll look at that next week. But nothing that Jesus did was done by accident. Everything was intentional. Every single word he said, every single thing he did, especially these signs were all done intentionally. There was a message in what he was doing. The Jews expected him, expected the Messiah to go straight to Jerusalem to kick out the Romans and to fulfill the prophecies about the coming kingdom. We, as I said, have wrong expectations often too about what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to do it. But this was, was extremely symbolic. What Jesus was doing here was meant to declare, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old has passed away, the new has come. But again, at first glance, this, this text provides us, presents us with a bunch of questions. Why the third day? Why Cana? Why a wedding? Why woman? And why wine? And so as we work through the text together, we're going, to explore, we're going to explore the answers to these questions. First of all, why the third day? Why the third day? John begins on the third day. Now, some see this as a, as a veiled reference to the resurrection. However, that's really a stretch given the fact that nowhere else in John's gospel does he ever use those terms directly to apply to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, unlike Matthew and Luke, who, who do it repeatedly. But as I mentioned last week, John has been marking days since chapter 1. The first day was marked by the, the delegation coming to, inter, to, 
to interrogate John the Baptist. The second day was marked by the declaration of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we met Jesus' first two disciples and Peter. This takes us to the fourth day. Then we met Philip and Nathaniel, fifth day. And now it's the third day of that, given the inclusive reckoning of time. This is now the seventh day. We are now at the climax of the sequence of events that John is describing at the beginning of his gospel. But why then has he been counting out the days? He doesn't do this anywhere else. He doesn't even do this in the time leading up to the crucifixion. Why does he mark out the days? Well, I think an interpretive clue here is, if you consider what I said a few weeks ago, that there are a lot of of parallels between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. Remember the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are intentional parallels. John had these truths in mind as he wrote this gospel. But the similarities don't end there. Just as Genesis proclaims God is creator, sustainer, and sustainer, he, he proclaims light and darkness motifs and God making man in his own image. All of these things are parallels between Genesis 1 and John 1. So I believe that, that by marking out these days, and particularly the seven days, that this was meant to point back to the first week of creation. The first week of creation. To, and point to the fact that, that God is doing something new, that this is a new creation. Now, if, if chapters 2 to 12 are a book of signs, then chapters 2, 3, and 4 are a subsection with a, with a ministry of Jesus revealing that, as, as D.A. Carson says, the old has gone, the new has come. So in chapter 2, we read about a new wine and a new temple. In chapter 3, the new birth. And in chapter 4, a new way of worship. C.H. Dodd explains that these three chapters present the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God, the old temple by the new and risen Lord, an exposition of new birth for new creation, a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ, and the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with worship in spirit and in truth. So then what we need to ask, then why Cana? John continues, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. Now, we're going to focus on the wedding aspect in a few minutes, but let's stop and consider why Cana. Cana was a small town, and it's, it's believed to have been located in what is now the, the, known as, as Kirbet Cana, which means the ruins of Cana. And this location was 13 kilometers north of Nazareth on the main route between Sephorus and Damascus via Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee. Now, Galilee itself was about 20 kilometers away. You can still visit this site today. 
There, there are ruins there, but archaeologists haven't really done much work in that location because for some reason the Roman Catholic tradition holds that there's a different site. Uh, the modern city of, of Kafir Cana. Now most archaeologists believe that it's actually Kirbet Cana that was the site of ancient Cana. But why did Jesus choose Cana to begin his public ministry? Well, I think it's really logical. First of all, just think about just geographically. We find it in chapter 21, verse 3, that Cana was actually, actually Nathaniel's hometown, the disciple that we met there at the end of chapter 1. And we also know from chapter 1 that Jesus had just been at Bethsaida, and it's really not more than a day's journey from where, from where Jesus had just been. Matthew Henry sees the choice of Cana as pointing to Jesus' humility, as well as the fulfillment of prophecy. First of all, Cana itself is an obscure town. Unless there's another town called Cana, it would seem strange that, that John re repeatedly referred to Cana in Galilee. It's, a, it's as though it wasn't a well-known location. It's far away from the temple, far away from the religious activity that was going on in the day. Matthew Henry explains also that, that Cana was in the territory of Asher, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he says of Asher in verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. So he says that Jesus would perform this first miracle and would fulfill this prophecy for the citizens of Cana at the wedding, as well as for his disciples and for his mother. But why a wedding? Why did Jesus choose a wedding feast for his first miracle? As Craig Blomberg points out, the Jews, for the Jews, wedding banquets often symbolized the Messianic age. Turn, please, in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 25. Verses 6 to 9 of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people it will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is a covenant, or this is a, this is a prophecy of the new covenant. And so Jesus came as the fulfillment. This was the day when these things began to be fulfilled. They will be fully fulfilled at the return of Jesus Christ, but Jesus came to swallow up death forever. He came to wipe away the tears from all faces. That's the hope that Wend has in the midst of this trial. 
that no matter what pain happens in this life, even if the Lord chooses to take Dave home, she can rejoice because she knows that one day, one day, there will be a resurrection of the dead because Jesus Christ is the first fruits from the dead. That one day we will gather together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So these events pointed to, they were, they were eschatological, they pointed to the return of Jesus Christ. Wedding feast imagery repeatedly points to the kingdom of God in the Gospels. It's true in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, 25, 1 to 13, and also Luke 12, 36, which I'll read for you. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And it's notable here that the disciples are there with him. Now, these are the first five disciples that, that Jesus had called. Andrew and the unnamed disciple and Philip and Peter and Nathaniel. These are the, the, the first disciples. These are the only ones at this point who are actually following him. But the disciples in the presence of Christ are, like, are likened in Scripture to the guests rejoicing with the bridegroom. Mark 2.19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So Jesus intentionally chose this event. He chose this wedding to reveal himself, to do his, his first public miracle. So then back in, in John chapter 2, in verse, in verse 3, the unthinkable happens. The wine runs out. And Jesus' mother comes to him saying, they have no wine. Now this isn't just a social faux pas. To run out of wine at a wedding in that time was considered shameful because the, the, that culture did and still does focus so much on hospitality. The hosts of this, of this event would have been considered to be inhospitable. And so to, to not have enough wine, to not supply for the needs of their guests, would have been positively shameful. And there's even cases where such things would result even in a lawsuit. So then Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and tells him they have no wine. But his response to her is startling. He says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, literally in the Greek, it says, what to me and to you, woman? The NIV tries to soften it by saying, dear woman, why do you involve me? Now, I think it's hard when we're looking at idiom like this. We don't speak like that anymore, so it's sometimes hard to figure out what exactly is being meant and why he chose these words. It was interesting reading. I kind of expected that this would be the case, but but because of, of the, the, the strong and I believe correct view that the reformers had of the, of the Roman Catholic Church, when, when you read the reformers on this, they, they immediately 
jump to the, the fact that, that and saying that Jesus is not, or Jesus is actually uh, almost disparaging his mother. And it just is a warning to us in our own time not to, to read Scripture in light of our own presuppositions, even our own cultural presuppositions. I don't think this was a disrespectful way for him to speak to her at all because he used the same term. Jesus used the same term in John 9, 19, 26, and 27. When, when he's on the cross, just before his death, he committed the care of his mother to the apostle John. When he said, to, he said, woman, behold your son. And he said to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. But even if it wasn't disrespectful, it does seem like a strange way for a son to address his mother. It does seem to indicate a change in the relationship. In Mark chapter 3, as Jesus was teaching, his mother and his brothers came to him. And when, when people told him, he said in verse 33 of Mark 3, Who are my, mothers, or my mother and my brothers? And looking about it, those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I think this, this shows us that, that Jesus here wasn't breaking the ties, but he's emphasizing that he had a wider family than those relatives. And remember that, that his brothers at this point had still rejected him. They believed he was insane. So Jesus, I don't think, is, is disrespecting his mother. But, but whenever somebody comes to John throughout his gospel and requests a sign, Jesus refuses to, to give it. He says to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this, this is a phrase that comes up repeatedly in John's gospel. In, in John chapter 7, verse 30, when, they want, when his enemies wanted to seize him, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And in 8.20, again, his hour had not yet come. And then finally, in 13.1, which, which marks the beginning of the second half of the book of, of the glory, we read, now the feast of the Passover, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Then his hour had come. So from the context, what he's, what he's really saying here is the hour had not yet come for him to act. The Lord works all things out according to his perfect will in his perfect time. Now he does get involved. Calvin says that it's Christ understood what is necessary for him to do, but he will not act in this manner at his mother's suggestion. He is going to do things in his own way, in his own time. Now, I believe another thing that points to the fact that this wasn't offensive is because Mary doesn't seem to have been offended. She says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, she took Jesus' statement as being a clear declaration that he was going to do something. And she knew enough about Jesus to know that he would do the right thing. Remember, to this point... To, to our knowledge, Jesus had never performed a miracle. Nonetheless, Mary knew that there was something different. 
Now, any parent whose child doesn't sin for even a day would be shocked. Jesus had not sinned for 30 years. She knew, she might not have known fully who he was, but she knew that there was something special about her son. Not to mention the fact that she knew the circumstances of his birth. She knew that he was born to her when she was still a virgin. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, beloved, this is the best advice that anybody could give. Do whatever Jesus tells you, even if it doesn't make sense. Do whatever Jesus commands you. So we need to ask the question, then, why the wine? Verse 6, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So those six stone jars, they're huge stone jars. You can see a picture of them there on the cover of your bulletin, not the exact ones. But they were there for the Jews' ritual of washing. Now, now they have found a number of these jars um, in in Israel from the time of Jesus. In fact, if you go to, to one of the churches where the, the Roman Catholics at, at Cana Kafir, where the, the Roman Catholics believe that the original Cana was, you can actually go in there in the, in the basement of the church. You can actually see one of these, these massive stone jars. They hold 20 or 30 gallons of water. But the rites of washing, they were there for ritual washing. Now, the law does command that, that they were to wash. But however, was, was so often the case, the Jews went beyond the command of outward obedience. They, they went, they always, they took it to the nth degree on the outside, thinking that they were obeying God. And this continues today. When we were at the hospital the other day, and we were in the elevator, we, I was reminded of the fact that and Jane and I were talking about how if you go to a hotel in Israel, they have two separate elevators. They have the, the Gentile elevator and they have the Sabbath or the, the Jews elevator, which on the Sabbath um, stops at every single floor because it, it's considered wrong for them to, it's considered work to push a button on the Sabbath. Now, I really don't know where they get that from. But that just shows how far they will go to outwardly obey. But are we really that different? What does Jesus command us to do? So often we will refuse to obey in one area and overcompensate in every other area as though that would cause the Lord to overlook this area that we're refusing to submit to the Lord. And unless Jesus is the Lord of your whole life, he is not your Lord. And if he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. We are not called to outward obedience. We're not called to outward washing. We're called to do what we could never do. We are called to have clean hearts. 
no matter how hard we try, no matter what choices we make, we can never wash our hearts. And the law was, was meant, even in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, not even talking about the mission, all the ways that the Pharisees added to it, the law was meant to point to our need to have our hearts washed. The law was meant to show us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. So these outward rituals of washing were meant to point to the inward washing that we all need. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Samantha was baptized. Now, this was an outward act of obedience, which was a reflection of what had happened in her heart. It was a symbol of her union with, of, with Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. This wasn't a, an outward washing. It was symbolic. And it pointed to a spiritual reality. So when, when Jesus told them to use these water jars that had been used for purification, he was doing this very intentionally. So they obeyed. They filled the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then they took some of it out and brought it to the master of the feast. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So Jesus had turned this water in these six jars to wine. Now this was no small amount of wine. Remember that each, each jar held 20 to 30 gallons. This was enough, enough wine to, to, to give to over 150 men. So Jesus provides for his people. He doesn't just, just provide a little bit for his people. He provides an abundance for his people. Jesus came to serve. He, said in John, he says in John 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches. And now he's a vintner. He explains in John chapter 6 that he will be the wine too. That his disciples must drink his blood. But we'll, we'll get onto that in, in coming weeks. The host is shocked. He says in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, the usual custom was to, to provide the expensive wine first. And then when the people had been drinking, and this literally means intoxicated, they could, and they couldn't tell the difference, they served the cheap stuff. Now, you really can't get around this. Quite often in Baptist culture, we, we view the drinking of, of, of any alcohol as sin. But this is wine. This is wine. The Greek word here is oinos. Now, there is actually a, a different word. If you look at the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, there is another word for new wine. This is oinos. And you can see from the context that he's saying here that when they had been drinking, when they were not able to tell the difference, this was not mere grape juice. Now, of course, Jesus is never, never 
allowing drunkenness. That is sin. But here we're seeing that this is, this is wine. This is wine. And it wasn't just wine. It was the best of wines. Jesus was, as Leon Morris explains, turning the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. D.A. Carson says, Jesus is bringing the old wine of the new age, bringing the, sorry, bringing the wine of the new age, a joy that transcends and replaces the old water of Jewish ritual. F.F. Bruce says, Christ's changing of the water of Jewish purification, Jesus Christ is changing the water of Jewish purification into the wine of the new age. The Synoptic Gospels point to this interpretation as well. In Mark 2.22, Jesus tells this parable about putting new, not putting new wine into old wineskins. So like so many of the miracles in John, this is a living parable. It is a sign that points to the glory of Christ. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs that he did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So the glory of Christ was being manifested. John often uses, refers to Jesus' miracles as signs. And they're signs because they point to something beyond themselves. They point to the fact that God is at work. We've already seen in 1.14 that Jesus is man and God, that he is the Logos, that he is the teacher. But this is the first miracle that he performed. Now, Leon Morris points out that John never uses the word dunamis, which is usually translated miracles or power to describe the works that Jesus did. Matthew uses it 12 times, Mark 10 times, and Luke 15 times. Now, these are certainly miracles, even though there's many in our culture who try to explain it away and say that, that this was, was just a story or this was a Christianized pagan myth. But if somebody comes to you with an interpretation like that, they are revealing their presuppositions. We've been talking about presuppositions on Wednesday nights. They're revealing that they do not believe the word of God. And more than that, they are, they are revealing that they do not believe in God. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is God. Because John's saying quite clearly that this is a miracle which attested to Jesus as God. So these signs are from God and they point to God. We'll be talking a lot more about signs in the, in the coming weeks. The signs did not produce the faith of these first disciples, but it confirmed it. Signs on their own never produce faith. It's interesting here that, that many of the people who, who drank this wine are not referred to as, as his disciples. Now, we don't know how, who, all, who knew by the end who knew what had happened there. We do know, though, that at least the servants knew what had happened. And you can be sure that they did not keep their mouths shut. You can be sure that they broadcast what had happened. And we do know that there are some who, if not actually there at the wedding, were with Jesus and the disciples immediately afterwards. Look at verse 12. Notice there his brothers. 
were there. We don't know whether they were at the wedding or not, but do you think the disciples and Mary weren't talking about what had just happened as they made their way down to Jerusalem? They obviously knew, but they still rejected him. And it wouldn't be until later in his ministry, it wouldn't be until after the resurrection that they would really understand who Jesus was. And even James would give his life because he knew, because he then believed. So beloved, when you look at these signs, when you see these things, testified in scripture do you believe who jesus is we're all witnesses of these events because we read about them in god's authoritative inerrant inspired word so do you believe it his disciples believed in him his disciples believed in him. Are you one of his disciples? So let's think for a minute just about what this miracle meant for those in Israel. Remember, they had been looking for the Messiah to come and to deliver them from Roman captivity. Jesus came to deliver them from captivity to sin. Jesus came to give them life. They were no longer bound under the law and outward acts of purification. They didn't have to try to obey a complex system of rules in order to earn their salvation. Beloved, we don't have to try to obey a complex system of rules in order to earn our salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. He had fully obeyed on our behalf. And not only that, he had fully taken the punishment, the wrath of a holy God upon himself in our place. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? These events, again, show the eschatological significance of the story. J.C. Ryle says, to attend a marriage feast and cleanse the temple from profanation were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his coming. To purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be among his first acts when he comes again. Jesus is coming again. Will you be found amongst his disciples on that day? Let's pray.